Amen. Thank you, Brother Dave. Great thought. Good job. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. Grace, God giving us something good we do not deserve. Salvation is by grace. You think you're going to work it out yourself or save yourself, you will be disappointed. You can't do that. Job 42, we do have a brief business meeting uh, tonight. Uh, not too much other than the financial report to, uh, to read. By the way, Mike, did you make copies of that report? Is he bringing them? Okay. Because I know he went and uh, we got a deal on some chairs. And uh, so, you know, he went and, and picked um, th- those up and I hadn't seen them back uh, yet. Uh, as many of you know, we've been working our way through Job uh, on Wednesdays when I teach for quite some time. This is actually our final uh, lesson in the book of Job and our 12th lesson from there as of right now, uh, Lord willing anyway, I plan to work uh, next through the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one of the most interesting books uh, in the Bible in some ways with some incredible highs and in other ways with some incredible lows and I appreciate uh, the suggestions that uh, several of you offered and I certainly have them in, in the back of my mind. For the future. Uh, it's been an incredible journey through uh, Job as we were uh, introduced to the wealthiest, most faithful, godliest man on the planet, to a man broken by poverty, grief, and months of scraping oozing boils from head to toe. We sat in silence uh, on the sidelines as his three friends made terrible accusations about all of his trouble being the result of his own sin and him not being what he seemed to be and that instead of that he was a wicked hypocrite. Terrible accusations which they were unable to prove. We listened as Job responded to these three men and defended himself and his faith in God though as time went on we saw his self-righteous attitude, uh, an attitude that has crept into his heart become increasingly apparent as he spoke. And then as a storm approached on the horizon, we saw it on the sidelines as a bystander when a man named Elihu gave his perspective on Job and his friends. And we studied how Job and his frustration with his friends, uh, accusations and his situations, uh, he finally just blurted it out that he wanted an opportunity to speak to God himself, to defend his own righteousness and to basically tell God how this trial was unfair for someone like him. And then when I taught two weeks ago, uh, we talked about God answering Job. Uh, That's what Job thought he wanted. And though the purpose for Job's trial was not punishment for his sins, God did have a purpose in this trial. Uh, God had a purpose in allowing Job's three friends to show up and say what they said. And while Job's three friends listened in, God answered Job, and we reminded ourselves how God's first response to Job was linked to Job humbly confessing his sins and repenting, rather than God first coming alongside Job in compassion and empathy for his hardship. Uh, Job having this opportunity to uh, make his case before God and hear from God was not what Job expected. Uh, Instead, Job was made aware of the impassable gap, chasm, if you will, uh, between him as a righteous man and God 
as a perfectly holy creator. And so instead of courageously making his case that God had been unfair, uh, Job was silent at the awesome presence and voice of God and exposed who Job really was compared to who God really is. Job did have whereof to glory before man, but not before God. We saw after his half-hearted confession, 83 unanswerable questions, and Job finally fully humbled himself to justify God rather than himself or his own righteousness, and Job repented of his self-righteous attitude that he had allowed in his heart. And we reminded ourselves as we were finishing up last time that it's a wonderful thing to become a good apologizer to become someone who's a good apologizer to God, someone who's a good apologizer to people, uh, because uh, God is looking for the kind of people who take responsibility for their behavior and are genuinely sorry for their sins and their faults and, and want to do better and quickly apologize. God now is done speaking to Job about his sins. Uh, Job has learned his lesson. It's been extremely difficult, very deep trial of his faith. I wonder if God has anything to say to Job's three friends who've spoken so harshly to this good man. I wonder what's going to happen to Job now this trial is over. I mean, after all, his ten children are still dead. He's still covered with boils. He's still in absolute poverty. He's still being ignored by uh, his family, friends, and disrespected by his acquaintances. What kind of end does God have in mind for Job now that he's humbled himself before God, taken responsibility, and been forgiven? What kind of end does the Lord have for all of those who are faithful to Christ in deep trials as they learn and grow in their faith? Those are good questions. If you're able to stand, stand tonight, please, in honor of God's word. The title of my thought tonight is The End of Job's Trouble. The End of Job's Trouble. Job chapter 42, beginning in verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And for my servant Job, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did according to as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him uh, in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 she-asses. 
He had also seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hepek. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. And after this lived Job an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. Thank you. Might be seated. Uh, God started his conversation when God showed up on the scene with Job. Uh, he didn't start with Job's three friends. Judgment always begin with the house of God. Judgment always begins with God's people rather than the culture or the wicked. And though God's judgment does begin with those who belong to him, especially those with authority of any sort, everyone, everyone will give account of themselves to God. Everybody here, everyone within the sound of my voice, everyone on the face of this globe will answer to God for what they've done and what they've not done. Everyone will answer for what they've said and what they failed to say. Everyone will answer for who they've been and who they failed to be. Uh, and in that day, when we face God, there will be no excuses. There will be no pointing of fingers at parents, no pointing of fingers at the failures of spiritual leaders or other believers. There will be no pointing fingers at the environment in which you were raised or in which God chose to have us birth. Listen, most people blame who they are and the choices they make on one of those. But in that day, there will be no finger pointing. Listen, Job answered for himself, and he had no answer to the omnipotent creator. Job's only hope was to humble himself and take responsibility for his sins and faults. Job's friends now will have to answer for themselves too. And so God moved on. Remember Job's humble confession in verse 6 of, 42, of chapter 42. He says, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The truly humble confession, no finger pointing, no blame, God you're great, I'm not, I've sinned, I'm better than all these other people, but I'm not comparing to them, I'm comparing to you, I repent in dust and ashes. And with that confession, God is going to move on. And so first we see that God moves on to Job's three friends, and God was angry with them uh, for misrepresenting him to Job in verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Uh, Job had spoken rightly about God. These three had not done so. Uh, I hope you understand tonight, not everyone who claims to represent God are doing so in a way that pleases God. His history friends claimed to be there from God, claimed to be having a message from the Almighty, but they did not represent God in a way that pleased God. And the only way you and I can be sure of who rightly represents God is by comparing what they say with what's in the Scriptures. It's the only way. It's interesting that God was first concerned with them misrepresenting God than he was with how they had harshly criticized Job. Listen, I'm sure God wanted them to show compassion and pity toward their friend Job in such a deep trial. 
but it concerned God far more, and it was his first thing with them that not that, hey, you didn't show compassion to Job. Uh, first, it was, hey, you said things about me that were not true. I hope you understand tonight that every sin is first and foremost a sin against God. That, that's why any sin of any sort, whoever it is against, is always in some way a sin against God. And that's why we always confess our sins first to God because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as I mentioned last week, and then when you and I have offended someone and sinned against them, we should also uh, confess our sins and apologize to people when we sin against them. And like we talked about two weeks ago, I just say it again, one of the best things you'll ever do in your life is become a good apologizer. If you're somebody sitting here tonight and the words, I'm sorry, rarely come out of your mouth in your parent-child relationship or in your husband-wife relationship or your employer-boss relationship, if you are not someone who very quickly says those words, something's greatly wrong and you're proud in your heart. God wanted them to offer a blood sacrifice to cover their sins. That's the beginning of verse 8. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt uh, offering. You, you know, these three guys, they were not poor peasants. Uh, you, you know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, they needed a, the blood from a turtle dove, like God made provision for the, the poor. Uh, listen, these were wealthy, successful highly educated men for their day. I mean, they had been having this big intellectual debate with Job. They came from a long distance just to spend a time with him. I mean, who's got seven days to just sit there and not speak? I mean, these guys had the wealth to do this, and God expected them to offer seven bullocks and seven rams as an offering for their sins. Uh, God put Job in his place by pointing out the difference in a righteous man like Job and his creator with 83 unanswerable questions. God put them in their place by telling them, you are wrong in how you represented me. Now, as best as we know, there was not yet the law of Moses, you know, that uh, specified how uh, all these burnt offerings and blood sacrifices uh, were to be made, and so this would have been uh, very much like uh, Abel offering uh, a lamb, and Noah offering a blood sacrifice, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob offering a blood sacrifice. That was what this would have been like. In fact, if you keep your hand there and go back to chapter 1, it was very much like what Job uh, was doing earlier for his family and for himself. In Job chapter 1 and verse 5, do you remember? And it was so when the days of their feastings, that's their uh, children's birthday, were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Uh, from the Garden of Eden, uh, God required the shedding of innocent blood to cover sins. Man did not understand this at the time. In the light of the New Testament, we know, of course, that this was all just a picture and a shadow and a type of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. 
uh, but that's what God required of these men uh, also. In fact, God would not even hear their prayers until they offered these sacrifice, s- sacrifices and Job prayed for them. I mean, think about it. I mean, there were whole chapters of them trying to put Job in his place, uh, and that wasn't their job. God now clearly puts them in their place, and he makes sure they understand Job's real standing with God. See, they've not only been wrong about God, they've been foolish in how they handled themselves in Job. And that's how the second half of verse, uh, verse 8 goes. He says, uh, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly. That's foolishness in that you've not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job has. I mean, God says, listen, you have not represented me correctly. You have been foolish in the way you've handled yourself. <laughs> uh, and by the way, they didn't make any excuses. Uh, again, you, most of mankind thinks they're someday going to face God. And uh, God, you, this was the home you put me in, God. Uh, I mean, you know how tired I was on Sunday, and God, you know how those people at the church were, and God, you know what that preacher did to me, and uh, listen, Job was absolutely silent other than his confession, and these three men, absolutely the same. They didn't make any excuses. In verse 9, they just did what God says, so Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite, went did according as the Lord commanded them. And the Lord also accepted Job, uh, accepted Job's prayer uh, for them. Uh, listen, God knew Job. And it's interesting to me that God knew Job was the kind of man who would pray for his friends quickly, even though they treated them so harshly. I mean, think about that. I mean, Job, uh, remember, uh, up until the end, I mean, he's still, he's just covered in boils from head to toe, uh, forsaken by his wife, brothers, sisters, neighbors, family, acquaintance, uh, no money. Uh, All of his hundreds of employees are are, are dead. His 10 children are are dead. Uh, (laughs) That's the situation Job is in. And right on the heels of this, after God just humbled him as much as somebody can be humbled by God, 83 unanswerable questions from God personally, and God says, you know, I'm not going to do anything for you until Job prays for you. See, God knew Job. He knew Job was the kind of man who would pray for his friends, even though they treated him so harshly. I wonder if God could trust any of us like this. I wonder would God know that we would first want to exact some revenge and punish someone for a while as if we were God. I mean, they wronged me. They wronged me. Would God know that we would want to first withdraw our affection? That we would want to first withdraw our respect? That we would hold back our prayers for them, as if we were God, as if their offense really uh, was more against us than it was against God. Well, God know we'd stop talking to them and take weeks off to get over a real offense, let alone a perceived offense, as if it were really our place to avenge ourselves. 
Or, or would God say, you know what, I know such and so, I know her, I know him. You, you know what, uh, they will pray for them. It, they're going to be right over this. You know, sometimes we don't quickly pray for people who wrong us. See, we don't quickly forgive and pray for people who offend us because we feel like it. We do so by faith, knowing that the real vengeance, any real vengeance that needs to be happened, needs to be exacted by God. See, vengeance belongs to God. See, when you and I forgive and we quickly move on, what we're really saying is, you know what, I'm not going to stand in the place of God and pretend that I know what kind of vengeance needs to be exacted here. I will trust any vengeance that needs to come. I'm going to trust God to exact it. See, they hurt Job badly. They said cruel things. I mean, remember, they blamed the death of his ten children on Job. But God knew Job would pray for him. See, in reality, part of the recipe to getting victory over you and I being hurt is to genuinely forgive and pray for those who've hurt us. Did you see how verse 10 began? And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Job's captivity didn't change until he prayed for his friends. You realize he would have remained captive if he'd have been like most of us and refused to pray for the friends who hurt him. It's an interesting thought. I don't know how long it took these three men to find and purchase these sacrifices. I don't know how long it took them to get those sacrifices to an appropriate place to offer them. But you know what? I can picture these men moving as quickly as possible. Listen, in whatever time it took, and it wasn't weeks, and it wasn't even days, And in whatever time it took for them to get that, Job had already gotten himself to the place where he could sincerely pray that God would forgive them for what they'd done to him and forgive them for what they'd done to God's reputation. Job was a man of faith. And his prayer was the turning point for his trial. See, Job's relationship with God was restored when he humbly confessed back in verse 6. That's why God's attention turned to Job's three friends. But the restoration of Job's life began when he prayed for those three friends who kicked him hard when he was down. Please hear me when I say those who refuse to forgive and pray for those who hurt them are hurting themselves far more than those you refuse to forgive. Who do you have a grudge against? Uh, but by the way, if you really want to know, all you got to do is say, Dear Lord, please show me who I have a grudge against. That, that's all you have to do. And the first, maybe of several names that come to your mind, that, that's where you start. You're not hurting them by not forgiving. You're not hurting them by holding a grudge. You're not hurting them by refusing to pray. You're hurting yourself. By the way, thank God for restoration of a relationship 
with God and the blessings God gives when we pray for those who hurt us. Let me just for myself, I'll say amen. Do you know there's a lot of aspects of being a follower of Jesus that are not easy? They're just worth doing. Which gets us to our second thing tonight. God blessed the latter end of Job more than at the beginning. And that's the second half of verse 10. Uh, It it says, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had uh, before. What an interesting statement. Twice as much as he had before. Remember, in chapter 1 and verse 3, that's a huge deal because Job is described as the greatest of all the men of the East. He was the most wealthy person in that region of the globe, and God gave him twice as much. God is not against wealth. He's against us seeking wealth more than we seek him. God is not against wealth. He's against us loving wealth more than we love him and the things of God. God is not against wealth, but it is impossible to love God and mammon. We cannot love Christ and riches. Each of us must choose what our real priority of life is going to be. Seek wealth and you'll never have enough. Seek God and you will always have enough wealth. By the way, before we go on, keep your hand there. Go in your Bible to James chapter 5 because James uh, speaks about this story and in particular, this moment of Job's story. As I said, there are many purposes for what happened to Job, not just one. I mean, we've talked about several as we've gone through the book. I think it's good at this point to make note of what James said about Job in this situation in James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. He says, take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Notice, not enjoy. Uh, You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful, as he shows a lot of pity, and of tender mercy. Not just mercy, tender mercy. Uh, You can go back. Job, uh, he didn't enjoy this trial. He endured it. He patiently endured. Now, uh, based on the things that came out of his mouth, he did not think he was going to live through this. He believed that God would get him through this because he would die and basically be resurrected and and, and be with God. Job thought he was going to die in this trial. But James points out that it was his patient, his patient faith in this that comes out and is manifested. And James also points out something that's easy for you and I to forget when either us or someone we love is in a trial. And that's how God ends things. I hope you understand tonight the way God ends things is very different from the way the world and Satan ends things. Uh, Satan in this world puts every package in a shiny wrapper and in the short term makes it seem harmless, makes it seem fun, but in all the end it just brings brokenness, it brings death, it brings a (laughs) brokenness in a family, brokenness in hearts, in God's way, you know what, it's kind of wrapped in a rough package. And in the short term it doesn't seem as good, but in the long term, 
God's end is a good end. One of the, th- one of the things that I think is hardest to do when, when you're younger is to trust God with how to live your life. Because it seems that other people your age are just getting away with everything they're doing that's wrong. When you get uh, 15 or 20 years down the road and the brokenness begins to manifest itself in the lives that disobeyed God, and when you get farther down the road like I am and you look back at what happened in people's homes and in their marriages and with their children and with their health, after those choices, listen, you understand that God's end is a much better end than Satan or this world has. God's pity and tender mercy were there all along. Job just couldn't see them until after he humbled himself and after God was done with his trial and after he prayed for his friends. See, what kind of things happened as the tender mercy and pity of God were manifested to Job when his trial came to an end? Uh, You should have Job 42. Go back, keep it, but go back to Job 19. Just want to remind you of something we talked about earlier. We sometimes think that Job's trial was just this deep financial trial and this deep trial of of his health. I I want you to... When your relationships are all broken, I think that's even tougher than having no money and being sick. This is the emotional battle that Job was in. In Job 19, verse 13, he says, He hath put my brethren far from me. Mine acquaintance are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed. My familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house and my maids count me for a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife. Uh, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children despised me, and I rose, and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. Can you see the depth of that? Listen, when Satan works on somebody, he has a lot of things he works on. And that's why as God turns Job's trial, verse 11 of chapter 42, then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters, all they that had been of his acquaintance before, that did eat bread with him in his house. They bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and everyone an earring of gold. I mean, his family and his friends, they come back to him. And what did they do? They kind of, they staked him in his new business. They all gave him a piece of money. They all gave him a golden earring. And there's one thing Job was good at. He was a good businessman. And he was a good businessman with God's blessing uh, in his life. And Job literally had his physical wealth completely doubled. Those are all, these numbers in verse 12 are twice what they were in verse 1. The Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she asses. So again, 
uh, he's going to go from over 800 employees to 1,600 uh, plus employees. And God gave Job 10 more children. Say, weren't they doubled? Now Job at this point had 10 in paradise in Abraham's bosom. And he had 10 on earth. Verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. Um, you know what? It's a wonderful thing in life to know that those we lose with faith will be part of our life again. Job had lost 10 children, but he only temporarily lost them. See, these 10 new children didn't replace the first 10 children like the livestock was replaced. These were 10 children in addition to the 10 children he still had that were now with God. Uh, the scriptures really don't say it, but it, it, it's a pretty hard thing to imagine that in some way God didn't restore like Job's wife's youth a bit uh, in this. If you remember, uh, I mean, Sarah, when she had uh, Isaac, uh, she was past the age when she could give birth, and God in some way kind of restored uh, that aspect of, of her youthfulness. And, you know, when the story began, uh, Job and Job's wife they had 10 adult children. And now she has 10 more. <laughs> you know, we don't talk enough, I don't think, about Job's wife's faith. Uh, we're real keen on her lapse of faith when in a dark moment she said to Job, curse God and die, so I'll still retain thine integrity. And that was a bad moment. Listen, good people have bad moments. You know, thank God, read Hebrews chapter 11, a great hall of fame of faith. God doesn't look at our life based on the worst snapshots of our life. God looks at our life based on the video. And th this good woman, by the way, this was her husband going through this. These were her 10 children too. And so now God gives her, her husband, and 10 additional children. And then God blessed Job to live 140 years after this trial. Four generations, verses 16 and 17. After this, lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. Isn't that really the way we all want to die? Old and full of days rather than young. <laughs> With a lot of tasks incompleted. Uh, this kind of lifespan, is again, is uh, part of what makes us go back and place Job in the time of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can bet when this was all done, Job's faith in God was stronger than ever before. But you know what I think really changed? I think his appreciation for his family, friends, and people in life and for his health, I believe it had completely changed. And though hidden from view during this trial, when Job closed out his life, if you'd ask him, said, Job, would you change anything? He'd have said, you know, it was miserable, hard, and painful in trial. My spirit, my emotions, my body were broken in a manner that I cannot even describe, but I would not have changed a thing about the way God handled my life. If he had a regret, it would just have been times when he wished he trusted God more and followed God better. See, Job would have looked you and I in the eye and he just said, 
God's been good in my life. I have been blessed beyond my wildest dreams. See, God is always good. But our vantage point is always skewed. And especially so when our affections are in this life instead of the next one. I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know what any of us will go through tomorrow. But I do know this. God has an ending for anyone with faith in Christ that will be good and that will demonstrate God's pity and God's tender mercy. If you bow your head and close your eyes, we we don't need a piano tonight. Just in your seats there, why don't you just talk to the Lord about your life?